You may have heard someone say there's no such thing as a bad question. Well, certainly some questions are better than others. Jesus had gotten some really terrible questions. Terrible because they were so insignificant and terrible because they were insincere. They were questions that were designed to trick, stump, undermine, test Jesus. One of those questions we looked at last week, Matthew 19, 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And we looked at that last week. But the motivation for the question was to test Jesus. But today, we have a great question, a wonderful question. It was a great question because it was a sincere question. And it was a great question because it dealt with the most important issue that one could ever imagine. In all of life, there is no more important question to answer than what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is required of us if we are going to be in God's presence forever and ever? What must I do to be saved? It was a great question. It's even a better answer. It's a better answer because it was a truthful answer. It's a better answer because it was a thought-provoking answer. And it was a better answer because it was a penetrating answer. It reached to the heart of the man. So we begin by looking at the questioner. The questioner. What can we learn about him? What we read in verse 16 says, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We're looking at a real person. This is not a parable. This is an actual event. So what do we know about this man, his description? According to verse 22, he's a young man. Again, according to verse 22, he's a rich man, for he had great possessions. We also know a little bit about his character. He is respectful. Verse 16, he refers to Jesus as teacher. In the book of Luke... He refers to him as a good teacher. He is a moral person. After Jesus had said that he must keep the commandments, the young man responded in verse 20, All these have I kept. As he looked at his heart, as he thought about his life, he said, I've done that and I've kept the commandments. He lived a moral life. He is what we would refer to as a good person. And he is sincere. He is is sincere. How do we know that? Two ways. First, he does not ask the question in in general terms. He doesn't say, what must a man do to be saved? He's not just asking a theological question. He's not just trying to ascertain for purposes of academia, what must a person do to be saved? But he says, what must I do to be saved? 
He wants to know about his own personal relationship with God. What must I do to be saved? And then secondly, we know his sincerity when it tells us in verse 22 that the young man, after hearing this, went away sorrowful. Sorrowful. He wasn't indifferent to Jesus' response. He wasn't apathetic. He didn't let it just roll off his back. Nor was he angered by Jesus' response. He didn't get upset with Jesus. But he was sorrowful. He was sad. And the only way that that would have produced sadness is that he took it to heart. He really thought about what Jesus said. He really wanted to know. He was sincere. So let's look at the question. Verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The presupposition of the question was, what does it take to merit or earn eternal life? What must I do in order to merit, earn eternal life? Why did this man ask the question? As I read through this text, I think the young man was expecting the answer to be, you don't need to do anything, you have earned eternal life. Well done. It's yours. Go away happy. If anyone deserves heaven, you do. That's what makes this text so powerful. Because a good, moral, sincere person who has been trying to keep the commandments of God comes and says, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thought he was going to hear nothing. So why do you ask the question? Well, if you take a real negative spin, at the worst, the question was self-serving. And the rich young ruler wanted to be commended publicly for his righteousness. Maybe he asked the question so that everyone could hear Jesus say, you're a righteous person. Perhaps. But I like to put the best spin on the question. Namely, that this young man was confident, but yet seeking reassurance. He thought that he merited eternal life. He thought that he was good enough to be saved, but it would be awfully nice to hear that from Jesus. It would be great if Jesus said, you merit eternal life. So I believe he comes to Jesus seeking reassurance that as he seeks to serve and honor God, that indeed he's on the right track and he's going to inherit eternal life. He was convinced that he was good. But would Jesus say that he is good? That is the question. And it's an appropriate question for each one of us to ask this morning. Am 
Am I good enough to merit eternal life? Are you good enough that when you die, you're going to be in heaven? Are you good enough? What do you think the answer to that's going to be? Well, you lived a good moral life. You're sincere. You're trying. You're a good person. Is that what we expect to hear? Let's look at Jesus' answer to the question. What does Jesus say to this young man? First, we have Jesus' uh, initial response. Verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Only one is good. Who do you think that one person is? Only one is good. Jesus is setting a foundation for the rich young man to look at himself. What does goodness look like? Then he goes on to say, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So now the young man wants to know specifically what commandments is Jesus referring to in verse 18. He said to them, which ones? What commandments do I have to obey in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus is not referring to the commandments that are given by the Pharisees. He's not talking about all the man-made traditions that the Pharisees have come up with. He's not talking about all the rules and all the regulations. Jesus makes it clear he's talking about the Ten Commandments. Notice verse 18. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do these, the Ten Commandments. Obey God's law. To which the young man replied, I have faithfully been keeping all those commands for years. Notice verse 20. All these I have kept. Parallel passages say from his youth up. From a child. He says, I have been obedient to these things. Unless we be too hard on him. That was the Apostle Paul's view of himself before he was saved. As far as the law is concerned, blameless, he said. I haven't done those things. I haven't murdered. I'm a good person. I've kept all these things. Then he asks the question, what do I still need to do? Verse 20, what do I still lack? Okay, so he's picking up that he's not good enough. He's picking up on that. Because Jesus said there's only one who is good. He says, well, what do I need to do? He says, obey the Ten Commandments. And he says, okay, I've done that. So now what? What do I need to do now? 
Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The intent of Jesus' response was to reveal to the man the overestimation of the young man's righteousness. See, this young man said, I've done all these things. But he really hadn't. He really hadn't. He didn't really understand what true righteousness looked like. And so rather than Jesus simply saying, no, you didn't. You didn't keep all these commands. Jesus is seeking to bring conviction into this young man's life. He wants this young man to come to grips with, no, you haven't kept all these commands from your youth up. And so Jesus says to him, in order to bring about this conviction, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus said this actually to be kind to this young man. According to Mark chapter 10, verse 21, it says this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. It was a loving response. Didn't say it with harshness. Didn't say it with cruelty. Said it so that this person would come under conviction. The reason he told him to sell everything was to reveal the fact that he really didn't love his neighbor the way that he loved himself. He wanted these possessions for himself. He didn't want to share these with others. He didn't want to give these things away. He didn't view other people's needs in the way in which he viewed his own need. Jesus could have picked on any of those commandments. But he chose that one. To reveal to this person that he wasn't where he thought he was. So back to the young man. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man was sorrowful because he had a lot of things. And he did not want to part with them all. Why not? Because he did not love his neighbor the way that he loved himself. That is the point. Rather than rejoice that it was possible to have treasure in heaven and that he could be follower of Jesus Christ, he went away sorrowful because he did not want to give up his possessions. The young man was faced with a choice. Do you want eternal life? Or do you want your riches? And he was sorrowful. Because he had liked these riches. In fact, he liked these riches more than the thought of eternal life. He did not love his God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his might. It just revealed where his heart was. Did he ever come to faith? 
I don't know. Did he ever come to a place where he said, I recognize that I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness? Did he ever get to a realization that he needs forgiveness for his sin? I don't know. Interestingly enough, the Bible drops him at that point. We know nothing about his future. And so I want to go on and look at the next point. That is that Jesus then uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples more about receiving eternal life. This becomes a teaching moment in the life of the disciples. Jesus teaches that it is hard for a person of riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's a tendency to be self-sufficient. In the book of Revelation, to the church at Laodicea, the angel writes as follows. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you either be cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't think you need anything. You don't realize how needy you are. One of the difficulties with being rich is that people don't think they need God. One of the problems of being in a prosperous America is people don't think they need God. Problems with being healthy is people don't think they need God. The problem of having a job is people don't think they need God. There's an old axiom that says there's no, there are no atheists in foxholes. There are situations that come up in life and all of a sudden people have this awareness that they need God. Even in our nation. You think of the shooting at Columbine. You think of 9-11. And then all of a sudden... Our president even is calling upon us to pray. In times of hardship and difficulty, there tends to be a natural looking for God. But in times of prosperity and ease, when life is just moving along and it seems like you got everything under control, why do I want God? That's just going to complicate my life. So Jesus says, it's difficult for a rich man to enter life. And so, on with the book of Revelation, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself with the shame of your nakedness and be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All of those things are uniquely applicable to the church at Laodicea. They were a very wealthy populace, and one of the things that made them uh, so wealthy was that they had an anointing Uh, salve for the eyes. And he says to this people that have an anointing salve for the eyes, you don't realize that you're blind. And you need a salve that comes from me. Then Jesus says these startling words, verse 24. Again, I tell you, 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. Excuse me. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, some commentators have posited that there was a low gate in Jerusalem that was called the needle. And that in order to go through that gate, a uh, camel would have to bend over and slouch and go under this gate. And so Jesus is saying you need to humble yourself and they're not going to humble yourself. <clears throat> I quote from a commentator, uh, Keener uh, Craig from uh, uh, his work, The Gospel of Matthew, a socio-rhetorical commentary. He says, and I quote, some commentators speculate that the needle's eye referred to a low gate in Jerusalem, peasant homes into which a camel could enter if cast off its load. There is no evidence, however, for such a gate, and a needle's eye meant then essentially what it means today, end quote. In other words, there is no historical basis to say that whatsoever. That's made up. What we are to envision is a little needle that has a little eyelet that I can no longer see. I can't thread a needle. So this little needle that I can no longer thread, it's easier for a camel to go through that than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's startling. We know that Jesus is referring to a literal camel because it tells us in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. He's saying it's impossible. You can't get a camel through that islet. It's impossible. It's impossible. So of course, the disciples are amazed. They asked, why? Why were they amazed? Because at the time, riches were considered to be a sign of God's blessing. If a person was rich, they were blessed of God. And if they were blessed of God, then they had eternal life. So in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? If a rich person can't be saved, then how can a poor schmuck be saved? If a person is abiding under God's blessing, then how in the world can someone be saved who doesn't abide under God's blessing? If this rich young man who's lived a moral and upright standing life isn't going to be saved. Then who's going to be saved? Jesus' answer is nobody. Nobody. With man, it's impossible. 
But man, it's impossible. No exceptions. No one earns eternal life. No one is good enough. There is only one who is good. But all is not hopeless. Because Jesus says in verse 26, but with God all things are possible. By God's grace, a rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven. By God's grace, you and I can enter the kingdom of heaven. But not by our own goodness, by, by the goodness of the one who is good. By God himself, sending his very son to die in our place. He is the one who is good. He died to provide the righteousness that we lack. When this young man heard this message, he went away sorrowful. My thought this morning is, how are you going to go away? What are you going to think? If you're here this morning and you never have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you think that without giving your life to Jesus Christ, that you're good enough to be saved. If you've got this concoction in your mind that, that somehow God grades on a curve, and you look at all the people and you think, man, you know, at least I'm not a Hitler. At least I'm not a Mussolini. At least, at least, at least I'm not a serial killer. At least I'm not like my neighbor. I'm pretty good. I'm here every Sunday or pretty often. I try to live a good life. I try to obey the commands. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these things. I think I'm going to make it. With man, it's impossible. No person inherits eternal life because of their own goodness. No person earns eternal life. It's a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in, so, don't be indifferent. Don't be angry. Don't get upset. And by all means, don't be sorrowful. But go away having believed. Go away having Trusted in Jesus Christ. Go away asking God for forgiveness so that you can have eternal life. It's the only way to go through the eye of the needle. In order to be saved, you have to be perfect. And not one of us is. Not one of us. But you can have eternal life by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I hope if you've never, ever asked Jesus Christ as your Savior, today you will go away saved and rejoicing in God's goodness. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. And it's going to give you a brief opportunity. If there's anyone here this morning that wants to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand while we pray. Uh, nothing magical about that. I'd just like to know. I'd like to pray for you, not by 
name or anything of that nature, but I'd like to acknowledge it before God uh, that uh, you have made this commitment. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for any who are gathered here this morning. We know that there is not one of us that is good enough to be saved. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. Oh, Lord, this rich young ruler was not good enough, and there's not one among us that is good enough. What is impossible for us is possible for you. And I, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't, hasn't ever received Jesus Christ, that today they would commit themselves to trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and not their own goodness and their own righteousness. If you are here this morning and you want to have eternal life, it means giving up, trusting in your own righteousness. It means taking a hard look at your life and admitting, and admitting that there's sin in my life. There are things I have done wrong that I need forgiveness for. I can't pay back. I can't work them off. I just need forgiveness. Christ died to pay for that sin. I need that forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. If you're ready today to receive that forgiveness, to acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner, you can't make it to heaven on your own, you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior, would you quickly just raise your hand so I can see it? Keep it up long enough so I can see it, I can acknowledge it. Anyone here this morning, I'm not going to make this long and drawn out. If you want to receive Christ, just quickly raise your hand. Our Father, there is no one here raising their hand that I can see. I pray that you would strive with anyone who doesn't know you. I pray that it's a reality that every single person here knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. May that be true. Oh, we want to believe that. We want to hope that. But, oh God, if there's one that isn't, would you strive with them? Would you work with them? that even if they go away indifferent or sorrowful, that they will ultimately come to you. We plead these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.